Uh, why don't you go ahead and find your seat. Y'all ready to study the word this morning? Good, I'm glad, because we really don't have time for pleasantries. We've got too much to do. <laughs> too much to do. God has so much to teach us this morning. And I want to start off by first just apologizing to you, because really, um, we don't have the time necessary to, to truly capture everything that happens in this church period. If, if you don't remember, or you haven't been here the last couple weeks, we are currently going through a study of church history laid out in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. And the reason that we're doing that is because at our certainty conference in the first week in October, we actually had the theme of prophecy be the theme of our entire conference. So we kind of studied Revelation chapter 4 all the way through the end in about four days. And uh, we learned a lot. God was good, and he taught us so much about his word. And so Jeff thought, well, why don't we just Finish the book. We'll just do chapters 1, 2, and 3, and it's absolutely a worthy study, um, but, but it is certainly also um, a flyby of all the events that happen in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 specifically. Um, the study of church history, as laid out in Revelation 2 and 3, what you need to remember and keep in mind as we're studying this is there are three applications to all Scripture, and Revelation 2 and 3 are no different. They're no exception. Historically, there are seven literal churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, do we have the slide with the map of these cities, these churches, maybe? Yep, there it is. So these are seven literal churches back in this time that John is writing to. That's the historical application. And the main thing that we're studying, though, is the doctrinal application. Because these picture for us seven prophetic church ages— that begin at the end of Acts and go all the way up to the rapture. They end with Laodicea, which is where we're at today. Devotionally, this also typifies seven types of churches for us as well that can be found in any church age at any given point. So we want to make sure that regardless of the era that we live in, we're a church that glorifies the Lord. Amen? So, as a quick flyby review, we have studied two of the church ages, we started with Ephesus, which would have been the first church age. Ephesus means fully purposed. This church was a fully purposed church. It was the church that Christ left, that the disciples started. The apostles started this church, um, them and their disciples. This was a fully purposed church. They knew what they were doing. But if you remember the commendation that Christ had for them, he said, I have somewhat against thee. Because you've left your first love, right? And what we saw historically is we see good, godly men, men who even gave their lives for the gospel as martyrs, who started saying some things that were just a little off track. Started saying some things that were not quite biblical. Maybe they had good intentions behind them, but they were written down and it sounded weird. And we're going to see that those sayings were the seedbed for what we're going to see in the church period Today, we started seeing things like someone calling faith the mother of us all, which is only a little off until you take it to the full extent that you can take it to. And we see the, the, the term, the phrase Catholic Church coined, which in and of itself is perfectly fine. It just means universal, right? We're the local body of Christ. There is the universal body of Christ on the world today. But they started using that term Catholic, and, and we're going to see in this church period where that comes to fruition. And then that, the next church period is Smyrna. And all of these church periods, they, they overlap a little bit. There isn't a hard line. You've got to realize that the believers in the church of Ephesus didn't turn around one day and say, huh, we're, we're in the Smyrna church age now. That's, that's pretty cool. Actually, it wasn't cool at all because Smyrna means bitterness 
and death. But what I want you to realize is they didn't know this was happening. We can look back with our, with our eyes of prophecy on the word of God and we can see what God was doing. And some things overlap because certainly there was bitterness and death in the Ephesus church age leading into Smyrna. We saw last week uh, when Jeff taught about the 10 Christian major persecutions by the Roman emperors. You can find that. That is historical fact. You can also read Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is absolutely a book that every Christian should read uh, at some point in their life because it'll show you what your brothers and sisters went through to not only hold the faith, but to hold fast the words of sound doctrine and to pass them to you today. And believe it or not, this persecution didn't prohibit church growth. No, 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 it fueled it. And we see the church growing through this persecution and they lop their heads off and they burn them at the stake and they do all these ridiculous tortures but the the, the word of God cannot be chained, amen? It can't be bound and God's people, when push comes to shove, they're gonna stand firm on the word of God and we see the church growing rapidly in Smyrna and the story of church history It's a story, it's a study of God moving and Satan countering. Satan watches, God moves, Satan counters. Uh, That is the story of the entire Bible, starting in the book of Genesis, but specifically in church history, we're looking for the moving of Satan. Because if you can't find Satan, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss what God's doing, and you're going to miss what Satan's doing to come against what God is doing. We're looking for Satan in church history. And Satan sees that he's making no headway in destroying the bride of Christ by brute force in Smyrna. So he's going to change his plans. And as we're going to see today, he's going to change his clothes. He's going to change what he looks like. Because, brothers and sisters, don't be shocked. Satan can be an angel of light. And he has ministers of light, too. And we're going to see that today. But before we get into that, I want to give you a quick Introduction in Job chapter 41. Job chapter 41 is perhaps one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on Satan and describing who he is. And God calls him Leviathan. Job 41 chapter 12. I'm sorry, chapter 41 in verse 12. God says, I will not conceal his parts. Talking about Satan, Leviathan. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. God says, listen, church, I'm not going to hide him from you. I told you all about him. You can read about him right here. It shouldn't surprise you when he moves to counter what I'm doing. I'm not going to hide him from you, but guess what? Look at verse 13 and 14. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face. His teeth are terrible roundabout. Did you know that Satan changes his clothes throughout church history? God says, I'm not going to hide him from you, but you know what? The beast is subtle <laughs> and he's wise. He changes his clothes and he even changes his face. He'll put a mask on. Who can open the doors of his face? He's going to put a mask on and he's going to change his clothes. Because in the first couple of centuries, what we see in church history is that Satan fulfills what Peter talks about when he says that he is a roaring lion going throughout the earth seeking whom he may devour. And Satan is a roaring lion in Ephesus and Smyrna. And through the Roman emperors, he just persecutes and he kills and he tortures and And he just does unspeakable things to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that became too obvious. 
That, that became too obvious and people saw that and they were like, there's people dying for this, this must be real. And they took the word of God and the church grew. So Satan changes his clothes. We're gonna see him change his clothes in Pergamos today. We're gonna see him take off his sword and his spear and his general's clothes and put on a, a robe and sit on a marble throne and say, it's okay, come on in. Papa's here. We're gonna see him change his clothes. Don't miss it, church. Can you find Satan in church history? Because many miss him entirely. And in Pergamos, we're gonna see Satan move to counterfeit not only God's church, but he's gonna counterfeit his very word. And this is so important because if you can't see what Satan is doing to come against God's church, you're not gonna realize that the most important thing that he could ruin is God's word. Someone much smarter than me once said that a study of church history is a study of where your Bible came from. It is. If you've never studied this before, you'll be amazed to see where your Bible came from. Because, I mean, think about it. What was the first recorded words of Satan in the Bible, friends? Yea, hath God said. If he can counterfeit those words and he can make you wonder, did God really say this? Then he can completely stop what God is moving to grow. So number one, the church called Pergamos, we're gonna get right into it, and really the first couple of points, I don't wanna get you excited because we're gonna fly. Uh, this isn't gonna be fast, I promise. But the first couple of points are, um, because point number four really is where we're gonna camp out this morning, but you gotta know this stuff. So, so the, the church called Pergamos, and what Pergamos means is much marriage. The word Pergamos means much marriage, and what we've seen is that each church's name what it means is it reflects the character or, or the specific events that are unfolding in this specific period of church history. Ephesus was fully purpose. Smyrna was bitterness and death. And Pergamos is much marriage. This church age is from about A.D. 325 to A.D. 500. So a little less than 200 years. And in this church age, what we're going to see is the marriage of the church to the world and I'm calling this church age, or this, this Pergamos church, I'm calling it the promiscuous church for many reasons that we'll see in a bit. But there's many other words that you could, def not define, but characterize this church as. I just think that promiscuous really, um, really covers a lot of it. You could call it the pagan church. You could call it the political church. You could call Pergamos the papal church. And you could call it the poison church. All of those apply. Let's go ahead and read about the Pergamos church, Revelation chapter two, starting in verse 12. We're gonna read all the way to verse 17. It says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Mm. Satan's not sitting in the bars and the strip clubs this morning, guys. He's got a seat that's in the church. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast the stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly 
and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's pray and ask God to open our hearts. Father, I thank you for your word, and I pray this morning, God, that the Holy Spirit would teach us, that it would guide us into all learning, that, that, that you would reveal your word to us, God, today, that our hearts and our ears would be open to whatever it is that you have to teach us. Maybe we just need to understand where the church and where the Bible came from. Maybe there's something you have specifically for us in our lives today. God, teach us, grow us in your word. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Before we get to this period of church history from AD 325 to 8500, I want to give you just a quick history lesson on the literal city of Pergamos back in this day that John was writing to in Revelation 2. Pergamos was the capital city of that Roman province. It was the capital of Asia for almost 250 years by the time John was writing. It was the center for pagan worship. It had a massive altar dedicated to Zeus. It had a massive temple built for Athena. They worshipped hundreds of different gods for different things. They, they worshipped a god specifically called Asclepius, something like that. <laughs> and what this god was was a man with a rod with a serpent around it who was the god of healing. A serpent god, huh? It's where Satan's seat is. <laughs> And if you want to know where people started worshiping idols with serpents wrapped around rods, check out the nation of Israel in the book of Numbers. You remember whenever God comes at the nation of Israel and judges them with serpents? And he says, you need, he tells Moses, you need to set up a, a brass serpent on a rod, and when they look to it, there will be healing. And what we learn in the New Testament is that was a picture of Christ, right? Who became sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But you know what you find? Have you ever seen later in Numbers, that the nation of Israel kept that brass serpent and started worshiping it as an idol rather than the God who saved? Comes all the way from then. People worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's idolatry. Can you see why God says, I know where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. This was a hub of paganism and false doctrine and idolatry in this literal city of Pergamos back in this day. It was dark, it was idolatrous, and to be a Christian in this church that existed where Satan's seat was would be hard. Many people would try to compromise the, with the world just around them just to keep the peace. And we're gonna see that even in the church history age as well. Number two, we see Christ characterized. Christ characterized, and in each of these church periods, we see God giving some character attribute about himself. And what we see is he does that for that church period because it's going to mean something special to them based on what they're going through, okay? And what God reveals to the church at Pergamos and to us today about himself is he says, These things, verse 12, saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. You know what that is? <laughs> it's the word of God. We don't got to spend too much time on this, but Ephesians 6 tells us that the sword of the Spirit that's included in the armor of God is the word of God. 
right? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. And the Lord reminds this church that he is holding that two-edged sword. And we know that it's two-edged, the word of God is, because Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that the word of God is quick, which means it's alive. And it's powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. This, this sword of God, the, the word of God is powerful, and it's alive, and it will, it will cut, man. It's got two edges, and that first edge, you know what it does? It cleanses. Psalm 119 in verse 9 says, How does a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. The first edge of that sword, it cleanses, and it will take your sin away if you'll just simply apply its truths to your life today. And what God teaches us about himself through it, that first edge, it cleanses, but that second edge, it judges. It judges. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see that out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, it's the word of God, and that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. The sword of the Lord has two edges, and one will cleanse, the other will judge. You get to decide which it'll do for you. It's interesting, though, that a church that's characterized by idolatry and both spiritual and physical promiscuity, God says, hey, don't, don't forget, I have the word of God. And it'll cleanse you, repent, lest he comes and he judges. It'll cleanse you if you repent, but... That sort of judge as well. You want to know what to do when the church marries the world like we'll see it does in Pergamos? When, when you're not sure what's right or wrong and everything that seems to be politically correct seems to be against God's word and you don't know what to do? You take the sword of God and you rightly divide it and you let it discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. That's what you do. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. And what doctrine means is what's right. Reproof is what's wrong. Correction is how to get right. And instruction in righteousness is how to stay right. And if you'll simply take this word and you'll let it cleanse you He'll tell you how to get right. He'll show you what's right. He'll show you what's wrong. And he'll tell you how to stay right. And that's how he describes himself to this church that's caught up in spiritual and physical promiscuity. And he'll judge those who don't get right. Revelation 2.16 says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ characterized. He's the holder of the two-edged sword. Number three, the church commended. The church commended. Verse 13 says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. God says twice in this verse that he knows that Satan dwells there, so we, we can't miss that. And even though Satan will masquerade himself around as an angel of light and he'll change his clothes during this church age and he'll counterfeit God's church and he'll counterfeit his word, not everyone's going to cave. There's always a faithful few who will stand on God's word and they'll see it 
Because God says, I won't hide them from you. There's always those faithful overcomers. He says that there will be those who hold fast his name and don't deny his faith. And that's important because, spoiler alert, in Pergamos, we're going to see both of those things happen. We're going to see people who don't hold fast his name because we're going to see another Christ come in. And we're going to see people who denied his faith and, and they completely, they completely uh, replace it by marrying Christianity with the world. And this fellow Antipas, we don't really have a whole lot of time to get into it, but it's actually easy because the Bible doesn't mention Antipas anywhere else. But we do know that his name means against all. And he was martyred, apparently for standing for those things that we just listed, for God's name and for his faith. Some resources say that he was the bishop of Pergamos at that time. And legend says that before being executed, the emperor asked him if he realized that the whole world was against him. And his reply was, that I'm against all. That I'm against all. Although there is some commendation for this church, there were those who understood. They, they, they knew God and they knew his word and they didn't cave. And you know what? They're going to pay for it too. But there's a lot more that goes wrong in Pergamos that goes right, and that's going to be the bulk of what we see this morning. So number four, we need to see the church condemned. The church condemned. Verse 14. God says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. This church, what happens in this church age, in this period of history, is so vital. You have to understand what happens here. And, and I don't have the time to unfold everything. This is literally a college class in the Living Faith Bible Institute on church history. But what I'm going to try to do is just give you a flyby of the important characters and the important events that happen that lead to the rest of church history. This age is so vital because it is going to set into effect the domino chain of events that will guide the rest of church history even into the future today. So you gotta get this. If you want to know more about certain people or events that we talk about, there's volumes written on the subject. There's some that you wanna stay away from, um, but, but certainly you can come talk to us and ask us and we can give you uh, where to go and to, to read up more. But let's start with the Bible and then we'll work our way to history because the Bible gives us some clear characteristics of this time. And verse 14 says that there's two doctrines that characterize this point of church history. He says there's the doctrine of Balaam, and then there's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. So we need to know what those mean, because those are going to characterize what happens in the church period called Pergamos. So let's just break those down quickly here. So letter A, key characteristics. Key characteristics, and the first one is the doctrine of Balaam. And the two things that Revelation uh, 2 and verse 14 says about the doctrine of Balaam is that it, it, it contained idolatry and fornication. Those are the two main pillars of whatever this doctrine of Balaam is. And we don't have time to study this entire thing out, so I'm going to summarize for you. But if you want to study it for yourself, it's Numbers 22 through Numbers 25. 
And you'll probably, this story will probably sound familiar to many of you, but we have in this story Balak, who is the king of Moab. And, and he's scared of the nation of Israel because they're coming to his city, and he's seen uh, how God has completely conquered all the peoples that they've came through so far. So this pagan king of Moab, his name is Balak, goes to this man named Balaam, so, so don't get those confused. Balaam is, is this, this prophet that Balak the king goes to, and he bribes him to curse Israel for him. Bribes him with money and all sorts of stuff, and eventually he caves and he goes with him. But what Balaam eventually finds out is that even though he tries to curse Israel, what comes out of his mouth? Blessings. He can't curse God's people without God allowing it. He should have listened to his talking donkey. One of my favorite stories. <laughs> Got to go back and read that. And so this happens multiple times. Balaam can't curse the people. And it looks like at the end of Numbers 24, he gives up. Because in verse 25, it says, Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place. And Balak also went his way. So it's like, oh, well, that's cool. Instead of cursing, God gave Israel a bunch of blessing. They're, they're doing great now. But then the next chapter says this, Numbers 25, verse 1. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bow down to their gods. What happened in two verses between these chapters? I thought they just got a bunch of blessing. But all of a sudden, we see them committing whoredom with, with the women of that false God-worshipping land. And it says that not only did they commit uh, physical fornication, but they committed spiritual fornication because they started worshipping their gods. Those are the two things that Revelation 2 says is characteristic of the doctrine of Balaam. Idolatry and fornication. So how did we get here? Because Revelation 2 tells us that Balak is, or Balaam is the one who taught Balak how to cast a stumbling block. Well, we don't see that in Numbers 24 and 25. You have to go all the way to chapter 31 to see it revealed. Numbers 31, 15, and 16. Moses says unto them, Have ye saved all the women alive? Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass, trespass against the Lord. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So let me sum this up for you. What Balaam did is he said, listen, Balak, I can't curse these people. It's pretty obvious. Every time I try to curse them, a blessing comes out. But you know what? If you get them to sin against their God, he'll do it for you. He'll judge his own people. So what he does is he says, take your prettiest women and dangle them out there. And you're going to get the men because they're stupid, right? And, and they, they let the lust of their flesh come over them. And they go to these women, and they fornicate physically, and then all of a sudden their heart follows with them, and they start bowing down to their gods too. We don't have time, but can I take a sidebar real quick, fellas? Listen, do you know why God doesn't want you to be unequally yoked in marriage or dating with a, a girl? And women, this applies to you too, but I'm just talking to the fellas for a second. Not to be unequally yoked with women who don't know Jesus as their Savior? Because one, it'll lead first to physical fornication. You can mark it down. But two, your heart will follow. And you'll start worshiping the gods of the land. Your heart will turn from the Lord. That's what happens. First, you start by giving your heart to the woman of the world. Eventually, you'll be drinking the Kool-Aid of the world too. That's how it happens. 
So that's the doctrine of Balaam, and we're going to see that be a characteristic of the church at Pergamos. But we also have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which God hates. So you can't skip over this one because God says, I hate that. Whatever this thing is, I hate it. And I think it was Matt who talked a couple weeks about it. He introduced it because this was mentioned earlier in church history before Pergamos. But just really quick, if you weren't here or you don't remember, the word Nicolaitan is what's called a transliteration of a word from Greek. Most words in the Bible are translated, and when you translate a word, you give the meaning in the new language. You take this word in this language, and you give the meaning in the next language. A transliteration is you take this word in this language, and you just spell it how it sounds in the other language. You're keeping the the word the same, you're just spelling it with English letters. So Nicolaitan comes from two Greek roots, Nico, which means to conquer, and Laos, which means common people. It's where we get the word laity. So what is a Nicolaitan or the doctrine of the Nicolaitan? It's those who wish to conquer the laity. They're against the common people, and God hates that. And what we're going to see in this church age is a hierarchical system of church government that sets itself up in a priest class, a ruling class, over the common man. And the common man won't be allowed to be saved without the baptism of that church. He won't be allowed to hear from God without going to a priest from that church. And God hates that. Mark it down. He hates it. And listen, I understand this morning is going to sound like we're coming against a particular religious sect. We're not trying to do that. We're simply studying God's word and studying history. And this doctrine of people who wish to conquer the common man, God hates it. He hates it, and it is characteristic of this church age, and it's no coincidence. God hates this doctrine, so that's the key characteristics. Don't don't forget about those when we start getting into the key characters. The key characters, letter B. Because we're going to get wrapped up in some events that happen in these key characters. Don't forget about what's characteristic of this age because God already told us this was going to happen. We don't have to be surprised. Like I said, we don't have time to study everything and every one uh, that happens in this church age. But I'm going to give you some of the most important ones and just some of the things they uh, did and, and what they said and what happened with them. Um, in my opinion, there's about three or four men that you need to know to understand what happens in, in this church age, and I'm going to give them to you this morning in a, in a flyby commentary. But, but Constantine, this first guy here, um, who, who ends up being the emperor of Rome um, in this church period, he's going to be maybe the most important character, but, but definitely these, these three or four I'm going to give you, they're going to be the most important. You've got to know who these are to understand what happened between 325 and 500 AD. Constantine becomes the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, which is the ruling empire of the world, from 324 AD until his death in 337. You'll notice, if you remember, that 324, when he comes to complete sole power, is really close to 325, which is when we say that Pergamus starts. It's not a coincidence. But prior to AD 324, when Constantine rises to sole power, uh, we've got a map here. This is what the Roman Empire looked like. There were four leaders of four main areas. Constantine over here, a guy named Maxentius, a guy named Licinius, and a guy named Maximinus. There, there were four main regions of the Roman Empire and four guys leading over it. And he is going to eventually conquer all of them and become the sole ruler, ruler of this entire area. That's a big place. This isn't just Rome. 
as, as we think of what Rome is today, like a city. This is the, the world-governing power at this time, okay? And, and he's going to rise to sole power of this in AD 324. But before that, in AD 312, we have what is called the Battle of Milvian Bridge, the Battle of Milvian Bridge, and if you had some sort of a history class um, recently, you know, within the last decade or so, maybe you remember this battle. This is really key uh, for history and for church history, because this battle is what gives uh, Constantine about uh, power over about half of the Roman Empire. He, he's rising to power, and the Battle of Milvian Bridge in 312 AD helps him. He's engaged in battle with Maxentius near Rome, and one night, here's the key, one night when they're in battle, he goes to bed and he, and he claims, he, this is what he says, that he had a vision. He had a vision of Christ. <laughs> Better be careful there. And he has this vision of a cross. And what Christ tells him is, is specifically, in this sign, conquer. So he sees a vision of a cross in Christ, and Christ tells him, in this sign, conquer. And what happens is the next day he plasters the cross all over his army, and he, and he marches in battle behind the symbol of the cross and victoriously defeats Maxentius. He becomes ruler of about half the Roman Empire then after that successful victory. And I don't have time to get into this, but if you're interested, it actually wasn't the cross that we're used to today. It was actually the Cairo symbol. Um, you can look into that. A lot of people think that that's a, a Christian symbol. It's not. The Cairo is actually the cross that he saw in his vision. So let me ask you, though, did Jesus appear to Constantine in a dream? It, well, I mean, you don't have to know the story. Does the word of God say that God reveals his truth to us today in the form of dreams? No. It does not. It does not ever say that you will be saved by seeing a vision of Jesus in a dream telling you to do something. It never says that. It never does. If he did have a vision, it wasn't the true Christ, that's for sure. Because 2 Peter 1 and verse 19, when Peter is talking about his time that he heard the audible voice of God on the mount, he, has, he says that we have a more sure word of prophecy than the audible voice of God. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. That's not how God reveals his truth. He reveals it through the finished word of God that he preserved for you and I today, and that's why Satan comes against it. He doesn't come in visions. That's not how it works. Find that in the word of God. You can't. So this, what's important here is this is what Constantine lists as his conversion to Christianity. Oh, is that how it works? Is that how you convert to Christianity? Is that how you get saved? By seeing the sign of a cross and then conquering? Nope. What happens in AD 313, right after this battle, is called the Edict of Milan. And the only importance about this is what he does is he gives religious toleration to the Christians and he claims that Rome now is a Christian nation because Constantine claimed after his vision that he converted to Christianity. So now Rome is Christian. It was pagan. It was the home of Nero and Diocletian who killed Christians because of their belief in Jesus and they wouldn't burn incense to their pagan gods and now it's Christian. That's what he says. And at the Edict of Milan, he gives religious toleration to the Christians, and he says, it's okay. I'm not, we're not going to hurt you anymore. Actually, guess what? The state's going to pay you, pastor. How about that? 
We're, we're not going to persecute you anymore. You can come out of jail. You know, there's no evidence that this man, Constantine, was any more saved than Adolf Hitler, but yet he is listed as such a key, vital player in church history by many church historians. This guy, Constantine. But you got to check this out. Many people bought in, because think of it, after centuries, centuries, anyone in here been alive for more than 100 years? No. We, we, we can't even fathom centuries of persecution for being a Christian, for being a Bible believer. So you have to understand, after centuries of persecution and torture and genocide, when the emperor grants toleration, that's a big deal. The new president comes to town and says, hey, it's cool. It's cool, we're not gonna hurt you guys anymore. That's what he's saying. They can breathe for a minute. And man, let me tell you, Christian, anytime that a Christian gets a chance to breathe in this world, you better watch out because Satan's changing his clothes. That's what he's doing. Jesus says the world will be against you. It hates you because it hated me. And if it's ever seeming like it's trying to befriend you, you better watch out. Watch out. In 324, Constantine wipes out Licinius and becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And in 325, which is when Pergamus starts, the infamous Council of Nicaea happens. The Council of Nicaea. You could count the Council of Nicaea as the wedding ceremony, if you will, for when the church marries the world. Because in a nutshell, this council, it, it started, it occurred to debate the doctrine of the Trinity so that we could all come together and, and truly figure out what the Trinity is and what it means. But afterwards, the creed, maybe you've heard of the Nicene Creed of the, of the Nicene Church Fathers. Maybe you've heard of that. Some churches will quote it even today. That creed after several years gets changed a little bit because it wasn't bad at the beginning, but eventually it gets changed to include the word Catholic Church. Oh, and also... Also, baptism for remission of sins. You know, that's, we'll just throw that in there, <laughs> by the way. And guess where the only church is that you can get this baptism for remission of sins? Are you, are you tracking? This is all happening. And this is what leads us into the church of Pergamos, which is the, the church of much marriage. You know where we get the word polygamy from? Pergamos. It means much marriage, and the world marries the church Rome is no longer a pagan empire, but a Christian one. And Constantine unites the empire because it used to be divided between the Christians and the pagans. But what Constantine's smart. He's going to unite the empire. But in order to unite it, he can't just ditch all the pagan stuff, right? Because then he's got all the pagans mad at him. And all the culture is mad at him. Because the culture is pagan. So he marries them. Pagan Rome becomes papal Rome. Pagans are converted to Christianity by the baptism of the church. The emperor becomes the pope, but still retains the title of Pontifex Maximus, the title of the pagan ruler of Rome just a couple years ago. Ever hear someone called the pontiff nowadays? Can you find him in church history? So the senate becomes the cardinals, the governors become bishops, the civitas become priests, the temple virgins become nuns, gods, the many gods that they worship become the saints that they pray to, and the queen of heaven becomes Mary. The queen of heaven that we pray to as the mediatrix. The feast of Astarte, or Ishtar, which is Ishtar, you see, 
You know where I'm going with this? Which is celebrated by bunnies and eggs, which are a symbol of fertility, becomes Easter. And this holiday celebrates the the resurrection of the sun god. And it's preceded by 40 days of fasting and weeping for her dead sun god. This becomes the fasting of Lent, which precedes the Sunday service celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It just married. They just Christianized the pagan culture. Don't miss this. Saturnalia, the the winter solstice feast, happens in December, but then on December 25th, there's this feast celebrating the, the birth of Baal on the winter solstice. It becomes Christ Mass, celebrating the birth of this new God that they tacked on. Everything was Christianized, and all the symbols came with it, including fir trees, yule logs, mistletoe. It just put a mask on. That's all. Now, I don't have time to take a sidebar and tell you, listen, if you have a Christmas tree in your house, it's all good. <laughs> but, but check this out. You gotta know where it comes from. You know, if, if you're on December 25th, you're just thinking, oh, this is the day that Jesus came to the world. He didn't come on December 25th. They just picked a feast that was already there celebrating some pagan god. But you know what? It's okay, because if we retreated from Christmas today in this world, they'd call you a JW, right? They think, well, you must be one of them Jehovah's Witnesses. You don't celebrate holidays. You gotta be careful. But you gotta know where this stuff comes from. Because he was working to marry the church. The pagan Roman Empire puts on a Christian mask and presents itself as peaceful. But man, let me tell you, through this promiscuous marriage, a thousand year honeymoon is going to result that's known as the Dark Ages. And in school today, they won't call it the Dark Ages anymore. They'll call it the Middle Ages. But the Dark Ages happened, and you know why it was so dark? Because the truth of the word of God was pulled out of the hands of the common man. And the light of God was hidden from him. And you've got to come to me now to get God's revelation. That's why it was dark. And for a thousand years you have a church, state, hierarchical system coming against the common man. Married the world. Papal Rome, don't miss this friends, Papal Rome killed more Christians than pagan Rome could have ever dreamed of. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs and see how many of those martyrs are after Constantine and the, the Christianizing of Rome because if you reject our baptism and you reject our idols and you don't do this and you don't come to me for the word of God, if you don't recant, you're a heretic and we'll burn you, we'll kill you, we'll kill your kids. Satan just changed his clothes And for this counterfeit church, Satan is going to need a counterfeit Bible. After the Council of Nicaea, Constantine orders 50 Bibles written on vellum scrolls, and vellum was tanned leather. The common man didn't have access to this kind of writing material yet. This tanned leather would last for centuries. Constantine orders 50 Bibles. And to understand where they come from, you need to know the next two people. This guy might be the other most important guy of church history. His name's Adamantius Origen. Adamantius origin, and he didn't live, he wasn't a contemporary with Constantine, but he's gonna set some things into action here. Origin was a heretic. He's held up by many church historians today and theologians as an amazing man of God. You'll hear so, such glistening things about Origen, the man of God. He was credited with, credited with over 6,000 writings in his lifetime. 6,000 He ran a school at Alexandria, Egypt. 
which is important. You, you put that in your back pocket, not only for today, but for the rest of this study. He's known as the father of the allegorical method that's on your notes. The allegorical method of interpreting the Bible, which basically means he spiritualized and allegorized anything that he wanted to. Whatever, however he interpreted it, he would just allegorize it or spiritualize it. He didn't take much literally. Although he did take one thing literally once in Matthew 19, 12. He misinterpreted it. Go back and look at it later. It resulted in him castrating himself because he misinterpreted the Bible. Eventually, he was kicked out of the school that he led because he was stinking weird. <laughs> he's a heretic. And he's held up today as this church father. He's also known as the father of textual criticism. Again, I don't know if he was the first one to do either of those two things, but it's credited to him as the father of the allegorical method and textual criticism. Does that sound like a good thing, by the way? Textual criticism. You know what that is? It's done all over the place with, with secular literature. Because what they do is they criticize the text and they try to discover what the author really meant by what he said. And when you take that like Origen did and you apply it to God's word, it doesn't go well for you. He criticized the Bible and it resulted in him making thousands of personal changes to the scripture based on whatever he thought or felt. Thousands. You need to remember Alexandria, Egypt, because this school that he taught at, they held, they employed these ideologies, this textual criticism and the allegorical method, as well as merging philosophy with religion. Gnosticism was rising at this time, and Gnosticism is just, it just means one who knows. Knowledge is held as key. The Gnostics, they know more than you. And the word of God is kind of married with all this stuff, and, and it's just incorporated into it. His, maybe his most famous work that he wrote was called the Hexapla. He wrote the Hexapla, which was a six-column Old Testament. It had six parallel columns. The first column was a Hebrew Old Testament, and the remaining five were parallel Greek translations of the Old Testament. Why do you have five of them? Because they were all different. <laughs> they all said different things. Yay, hath God said? Five different Greek translations of the Old Testament. And the fifth column is the infamous Septuagint. You may have heard of that before. The infamous Septuagint is the fifth column of Origen's Hexapla, which is supposedly a Greek Old Testament that existed before Christ. And there's many problems with this. I mean, so many problems. The guy is claiming, and church historians claim, that, that Christ taught out of a Greek Old Testament. It's ridiculous. But the biggest problem with this is they can't find any, any actual evidence for this existing before origin. <laughs> so the idea is if you study this thing out and you study out the Septuagint, where it came from, the letter of Aristeus, which is supposedly evidence for it, the LXX as it's called, what you'll find is all this really is is a bad translation by a guy named Origen who can't even really speak Hebrew. But this is the Septuagint the new versions of the Bible will put in their columns, the Septuagint says this. Study of her church history will show you where your Bible came from. Origen believed and taught many things. Let me give you a few. He believed the Genesis account of creation was a myth. He believed that Adam and Eve weren't real. He believed the Apocrypha was inspired. He believed that there was no literal second coming of Christ. He believed in infant baptism, and he believed that, that maybe the weirdest thing, every soul was created perfect in time past, but some of those souls fell and took on bodies based on the severity of their sin. Angels, men, 
animals, demons, these souls die and they reincarnate again and again and again in an endless cycle based on the severity of their sin. Was this guy a Christian? This guy wasn't saved, man. Father of church history. He believed that Satan would be restored and saved. He believed that Christ was a lesser God created by the Father that Jesus should never be addressed in personal prayer, and that there's no bodily resurrection, and the list goes on and on and on. This is what this guy believed. Do you trust this man tampering with the scriptures? What does the word of God say about tampering with the scriptures at all? Let me just remind you, Proverbs 30, verse five and six says, every word of God is pure. Not just the thoughts, not just the word in general. Every word is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Revelation, at the end of the book, chapter 22, says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of this book, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. God takes this thing seriously. And some of these men back here in the third and fourth century didn't. They made it say whatever they wanted it to say. It's gonna lead to a guy named Eusebius next on your study sheet, Eusebius, who existed from AD 260 to 340. He was a historian. He never met Origen. They weren't contemporaries. Origen died before Eusebius was born, but he admired him. He preserved many of his works. He also loved Constantine. He was a contemporary with Constantine, and he wrote The Life of Constantine, which is a biography of him, and he basically described him as a god in this book. Constantine ordered the 50 Bibles from this man Eusebius, who studied and preserved the work of Origen, and Eusebius would have had a heck of a time trying to get 50 Bibles made stat for the emperor in a time where flash drives don't exist, right? They're writing out the entire Bible, scribes. So he's got all these scribes that he can possibly have to fulfill this order of 50 Bibles. They're writing them on vellum, the, the tanned leather that'll last forever. You know that these guys are screwing up because they're going so fast. A lot of these didn't even agree with each other, but they last a long time. Do you think that the common man his scripture was written on this vellum? No, the commons man's Bible was written on papyrus. It was written on paper that would deteriorate after much use. That's where you'll find the Bible. These Bibles from, from Eusebius, they were copied from none other than Origen's corrupted manuscripts. And there's two ancient manuscripts that exist in part today, and they're called Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Venicanus. Uh, you can read volumes on this. We're just going to do a flyby. Because Sinaiticus, this manuscript, was found in a trash can in a monastery at the foot of Mount Sinai by a guy named Tischendorf who thought it was the greatest thing in the world. But these monks threw it in the trash. Another one, it's written on vellum, by the way. Vaticanus was found in the Vatican, hidden away, long forgotten in the Pope's library. Both of these manuscripts are written on vellum, hardly touched. One was going to be thrown away. Chances are very good, after much study, that they are two of the original Bibles ordered by Constantine from Eusebius, ultimately from the work of Origen. And what, the reason I go through this, friends, is because these two manuscripts are what the new Bibles call the oldest and best manuscripts when they use them to correct God's word. I, you can't make this stuff up. But men don't learn from history or they're too lazy to study it. 
And they don't know where their Bible comes from. David Cloud in his book For Love of the Bible says the pure word of God, my friends, has not been preserved in an obscure Egyptian monastery or on the dusty shelf of the Pope's library, but in the Bibles and manuscripts which have been valued and used by the common believers through the centuries. That's where the word of God has been preserved. And thus the devil starts the counterfeit of God's word. It would be continued by a man named Jerome who translated the Latin Vulgate which is the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church for centuries. It's important because the common man's language was Greek. It wasn't Latin. Latin was the language of the learned, educated man. So the official Bible becomes a Bible that the common man can't read. And furthermore, they outlawed that you could even read it if you could for the common man. And this leads to, you have to come to me to know what God said. And what did we see? God hates that. In Pergamos, the church married the world and the Bible was taken out of the hand of the common man and it wasn't for another thousand years in the 14th and 15th centuries that the Bible would begin to be translated back into the common man's tongue. A thousand years the word of God was underground. Never disappeared. It's just hard to get. People didn't have five or six of them stacked on the dash of their car back then. Couldn't get it. John Wycliffe was the man who began the work. He died in 1384, and the church hated him so much for trying to to translate the word of God into the common man's language that they they dug his body back up like 40 years after he died, and they burned his rotting corpse in judgment for heresy. They hated that guy. They hated anyone who tried to get God's word into the common man's language. And it was William Tyndale at the end of the 15th century who continued the work of translating the Bible into the common man's tongue, which was English at that point, who said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years I will cause the boy that driveth the plow in England to know more of the scriptures than thou doest. He says the common man is going to get the word of God back. Praise the Lord for men like that. Before he, William Tyndale, was burned at the stake by Rome in 1536, he prayed, Lord, Open the eyes of the king of England. His prayer would be answered in about, hmm, around the year 1611. Study of church history is a study of where your Bible came from. Do you see that? Augustine, this is very quick, very quick. I only mention him because he is a key character. I'm just going to mention a little bit about him. He was known as the father of Roman Catholic theology, He wrote the famous City of God, which the main thesis was that Rome replaces Jerusalem. The church replaces Israel. That ushers in that heresy that the church replaces Israel. And that brings about many heresies, but some of the things that Augustine believed and taught, he believed in salvation by works. He developed the unbiblical idea of purgatory. He practiced infant baptism, didn't believe in eternal security, He believed the Apocrypha was inspired. He believed that grace only came through the sacraments. He believed that salvation only came through the church, that Mary was sinless, and he prophesied of a post-millennial Christ, second coming, in 1000 AD. By the way, a lot of Calvinists love Augustine. (laughs) Wow. Do you see how all of this false doctrine allowed the Catholic Church to literally get away with murder for a thousand years? Because listen, if the church replaces Israel and Jesus is coming after the millennium, then someone's got to get the earth ready. So we got to go conquer all these people who don't believe what we believe and we'll set up this political church state so that Jesus can come and sit down on the throne. It ushered all of that in. Do you see 
church, why God wants you to have nothing to do with this world system. The church marrying the world is Satan's greatest feat yet. And that's why God tells us in James 4, ye adulteresses and adulterers, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You probably shouldn't marry it. Church, but this is what happens. Let's finish with the overcomers. We see the church celebrated. Revelation 2, 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. So there's two things that he lists, hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. It's not gonna take long to go over this because I don't really know what those are. <laughs> the Bible isn't super clear about what these are specifically, but let's, let's take what we do know. What do we know about manna? Manna was bread that God fed Israel with in the Old Testament, right? When they're wandering in the wilderness. We know that our bread today is the word of God, right? Because in Matthew 4, when Christ was tempted of the devil, he, he quoted the Old Testament and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So the word of God is our bread today. And in this time period, the word of God left. It was taken out of their hand. It was not completely gone. The book of Psalms tells us that forever, O Lord, thy word is established in heaven. God's word was promised to be preserved forever, but his word was went underground. It, it was taken away from the common man. So it's possible that he's just promising here that they'll finally get to see and to taste consistently the word of God, the hidden manna. It's possible. I'm not gonna be dogmatic there. We're just studying what we know about this. The white stone, many resources actually say uh, in ancient times, during a trial, a white stone would be given to a defendant with a verdict of innocence, and a black stone would be given for a guilty conviction, for condemnation. So it's possible that this white stone signifies that God finds these overcomers innocent, even though the Roman church found them guilty of heresy and killed them. It's possible. But biblically, who's our rock? Amen. Verse Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that the, that the rock that followed the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, capital R, was Christ. And we see in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Christ is our rock. Jesus is also pure and arrayed in white, right? Because he's holy and he is righteous, he is perfect. And in Revelation 19, 12, he has a name written that no man knows but himself. And when we're saved, we become new creatures, amen? 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So it's possible that this is also just a picture of the believer conforming into his image a white stone with a new name written. It's possible. Either way, though, and you can, you can search that out on your own if you want. There's, uh, I mean, we're just studying what we know from the words he gives us. Either way, there are overcomers in Pergamos. You can search guys like the Donatists. Um, there's, all throughout church history, as we're gonna see more in the coming weeks, there, there's always a line of people who don't cave there's this false dichotomy in the world that you're either a Catholic or you're a Protestant. The problem with that is all Protestants were Catholics at some point, but there were always people who weren't, <laughs> who didn't cave, who were tortured for not handing their Bible over, who were tortured for not believing in baptismal regeneration. There's always a line. The Donatists were some of them. Eventually they become the Anabaptists. 
who rebaptized believers who thought they were saved by the Roman Catholic baptism. Eventually, they drop the ante and they become Baptists. There you go. Either way, there are overcomers. Uh, there's, I'll give you one. His name was Chrysostom. He was an awesome preacher back then. He was the bishop of Antioch from 386 to 398 and the bishop at Constantinople from 398 to 404. He renounced the Catholic Church and preached against it. He was known as the golden-mouthed preacher. He he's called by a lot of people the Charles Spurgeon of his day. He was a powerful preacher. He was banished in AD 404 to Russia. And what did he do after that? Well, he just simply decided to translate the word of God into Russian. <laughs> Man, when Christians are persecuted, the word of God is propagated. <laughs> when true Christians are persecuted, that doesn't hinder the word of God, it opens the gates, man. And do you guys see why God hates when the world mingles with his bride? God wants his church to be a chaste virgin, pure and arrayed in white for his son. Guys, we cannot let ourselves, let's go to the, the, the devotional application, we can't let ourselves in these last days be a church who allows ourselves to be promiscuous with the world. Don't stain your wedding garment. Don't let the doctrines and the stuff of this, the course of this world stain you. We're called to be in the world, but not of it. And when the church marries the world, man, Satan, he just goes to town, persecuting God's people, counterfeiting his word. And we can see the effects of it even today, and it's gonna play out in history, as we learned at the Certainty Conference, whenever Christ comes back. So guys, we gotta learn from history. Stay away from the counterfeits. Tell as many people about Jesus as we can. The false hierarchical system that we've been talking about this morning, you know, the, the Bible tells us that our enemy is not flesh and blood, right? Our enemy is the prince of the power of the air. It's the spiritual powers in high places, Ephesians 6. We, we don't have a flesh and blood enemy, so people who believe a false ideology, they're not, they're not your enemy. Speak the truth in love. The most important thing to learn from this is don't you be married to the world and tell as many people about Jesus as you can because that's what the persecuted church did after the, the, the government married the church and the pagan church was created. That's what we need to do. Learn from history. Don't give in to the counterfeits and tell as many people about Jesus as we can. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you this morning and I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, God, that 